Nathaniel is going to come and continue in our series on the cross. Uh, I can just say for myself from having preached the last couple of weeks in this series, it's such a wonderful theme to preach on, these different images, different pictures of what the cross of Christ means. It's also actually uh, extremely kind of emotionally demanding because whenever we talk and preach about the cross of Christ, we are entering into spiritual conflict. The cross of Christ is about a great victory over our mortal enemies of sin, death, and the devil. So every time we preach on the cross, there is a spiritual fight going on. So I'd urge you to kind of wage that fight yourselves in your own minds and spirits, as Nathaniel was preaching, in terms of focusing and uh, not, not letting yourself get distracted. And it'd be great to pray for Nathaniel as well, that God would be on him as he comes to speak. So Lord, we do thank you. Jesus, thank you for your cross by which we have access into the presence of God. And I ask now that as Nathaniel comes and ministers your word to us, that we uh, would receive it, we'd hear it. I pray for your power to be on him. And I pray as we look at another aspect of what the cross has achieved, we would be fed and encouraged and challenged and built up. And uh, there would be uh, uh, spiritual advance, there'd be kingdom advance that happens as a consequence of what we hear and the way that we respond from uh, this message this morning. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen. Nathaniel. Amen. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Well, whilst I get myself sorted, we're actually going to start in Revelation 20 today. So if you've got a Bible on you, then you can um, turn to Revelation 20 and stick a finger in there, and we'll um, come to it before too long. So like, uh, like Matt said, winter our fourth in our series on the cross now, and we've been taking this deep dive, looking at eight different themes to help us better understand what's achieved at the cross, what it means for us, and how we live our lives today, and it's really helping to ground us in the foundational elements of our faith, so that we can have renewed delight for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And in previous weeks, we've looked at how the cross rescues us from slavery and the need for blood to be shed on our behalf to purify us, and last week on the subject of redemption and how Jesus bought us or redeemed us through his death and resurrection. And if you've missed any of these, I really want to encourage you, go back and have a listen, because they're so, so important to what we believe. You can go and find them on the Gateway Church website or wherever you get your podcast from. Now, this morning's sermon is called The Great Assize, Jesus Deals with the Verdict Against Sin. And a good deal of my prep time this week has been in trying to figure out how you pronounce assize. So... you are forgiven this morning immediately for not knowing that word. Um, It's not a term that we particularly use anymore, but an assize for a good chunk of British history was a court that would meet and try some of the criminal cases in this this country. It looked a bit like this. This is what Google said an assize looked like. So there you go. Very official. Our modern legal system, the Crown Court, is built on the basis of how an assize used to work. And as you know, in our society, the most definitive and binding judgments against a person are decreed in a courtroom. If you were found guilty in the assize, you were guilty and your punishment was assured. And it's the same way that our modern courts now try crimes and dish out punishments. It would have been a place of high drama. And I I suppose that's what we conjure to mind now when we think of courtrooms. Perhaps we've been over-serviced by television over the years. The idea of judgment and being made guilty and receiving punishment in a courtroom. And we're going to be using a lot of courtroom imagery this morning, so it's good to hold that image in your mind as we go, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I, like quite a lot of people, have been totally caught up in the drama of the BBC's line of duty. Anyone else? Yeah, there you go, lots of hands. It's all about this uh, 
this uh, anti-corruption unit in the police, AC-12, looking out for corrupt coppers. And this is a show where everyone's a suspect and no one's totally innocent. Corrupt policemen are examined and held to account by the law and judged by the evidence at hand. And last Sunday, it was the second to last in the current series, and it was watched by 10.9 million people live. That's 16% of all adults in the UK tuning in to watch one TV show on a Sunday night. They were glued to the edge of their seats, watching the drama and the tension and the excitement of it all. And no spoilers, I promise, the finale's tonight, so they're expecting upwards of 16 million people tuning in for that one. It's amazing, isn't it? But you can see how intrinsic this sense of judgment and justice is in the UK, that so many people would tune in to get that sort of content. And I'm sure there's lots and lots of other examples that can come to your mind, though. Maybe some non-fictional examples, the O.J. Simpson trial of the 90s, or the trial of Derek Chauvin, who just a week or so ago, was convicted of murder of George Floyd. And when you think about courtrooms, you might even conjure to mind curly wigs or Judge Judy or whatever else it might be. Um, but it's a million miles from the hard reality of this morning's topic, the great assize or the great judgment. We sometimes call it the final judgment, the ultimate moment of judgment of man where Jesus returns at the end of history. The dead are raised and all humanity stands before God as our lives are examined and Jesus decides our fate. That's why the most helpful thing to do here is to turn to scripture for our grounding. In this case, we'll start in Revelation 20. Revelation's a book all about the end of the story where we see Jesus casting judgment on all those who have actively opposed God through the centuries and against Satan himself, all of whom are judged and found guilty and thrown into what the Bible refers to symbolically as a lake of burning sulfur. And then we get to Revelation 20, verse 11, which is where we're going to start, where all mankind stands before the throne of God, and the great assize, the final judgment, is called to order. And I'll read from verse 11. It's on the screen if you haven't got a Bible. Start saying, the judgment of the dead. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they'd done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Whoa, this is sobering stuff, isn't it? And it's not something that perhaps you're used to having spoken about very much. You might consider it's the sort of hell and fire type preaching that's uh, more at home on a street corner than this morning. But I want to show you that it's integral that we get a grip on what's being said here and why it's actually good news for us. This scene in Revelations, famously depicted by Michelangelo in this painting, The Last Judgment, was painted in 1536 to 1541, and it adorns the altar wall of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican City. And when you sit in the chapel, you're face to face with it, the reality of it. If your eye wanders, it meets the reality of what Revelation 20 speaks of. There's something of the stark reality of our destiny that's inescapable when you look at that painting. And believe me, uh, the PowerPoint doesn't do it justice. It's massive. <laughs> now contrast it with the scene we've got here this morning. Fresh, white, beautiful walls. It's uh, much more appealing to the visitor for a start, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we've got nothing quite as beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with our lovely wall, of course, but the point I make is that the reality of our wrongdoing isn't as prominent and in your face on this white wall as it would be when you're stood face to face looking at 
the last judgment there. And the danger of not preaching it and not being faced with it is that we can lull ourselves into forgetting the reality of it. In our culture, speaking about these sorts of things is seen as a bit much. God, dear. This, you know, making me feel guilty. That's out of fashion. That's not the sort of thing we're supposed to be talking about. We can talk about what it means to be a good person or a good Christian and the love of God, all of which is really important. But by discussing these subjects, it can be easy to sanitize ourselves from the reality of judgment and justice. And we can get caught up in the comfort and the comforts of life and trick ourselves into thinking that this is all metaphorical. We can live comfortably in a society without facing up to the bigger questions of morality. We can distract ourselves with television and music that tells us that love is all we need. We can aim at 2.4 children and do what makes us happy. Sinatra's I did it my way as our mantra as we become masters of our own destiny. But how does that picture of society line up against Michelangelo's last judgment or what we read when we open up our Bibles to Revelation? You might recognize the surname of this next chap. John Hosier wrote an excellent book on, uh, on Revelation. And uh, of course, he's of this parish and is, will be attending one of our services at Older Road this morning. But his brilliant book, when he gets to Revelation 20, he writes this. We live in a world where everyone expresses an opinion. Everyone has an opinion on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. What we read in the Bible saves us from our own opinions. God's word says that there is a day of judgment to come, the result of which will be an eternity with Christ or an eternity without Christ. So ignoring the theme of judgment, which so regularly and so deeply runs through scripture, is to ignore part of our faith and the beauty of what the cross represents for us. Much of this series is based on a book by Fleming Rutledge called The Crucifixion. And in it, she talks about this idea of therapeutic preaching cherry-picking the bits of the Bible that make us feel warm without dealing the of, with the realities of what the whole of Scripture can attest to. And perhaps this can be said of society as well. Behind the comfort of life, those big questions still exist. Judgment and justice are a reality of human existence. And I believe that's why we feel those issues of injustice so acutely, why it fills our newspapers and TV screens, and why 11 million people tuned into the BBC to watch a crime drama last Sunday. And why so many are perhaps still putting their heads on their pillow at the end of the day uh, with a, a feeling of anxiety or frustration. And I think the events of the last year have actually brought these things to the fore much more. Access to well-being services never being higher or health inequalities more stark. As more people, when faced with being, the rug being swept from under their feet, are asking what it's all about. So back to Revelation 20, which talks of books. We've got the book of life, and these books where there's a recording of everything we've ever done. And imagine all those things you've ever done, the big things, the high moments of life, and all the small things, all the things that you'd hoped no one would find out about, the things that have done in secret that you hope never come out, things you regret. Would you want to read those books about your life, open them up and see what's in them? When you're stood before the great white throne, what argument would, we, would you have as those books are read? How would you begin to justify those things? You'd point to the good stuff maybe, but is it enough? Fleming Rutledge says, speaking from the perspective of the theology of the cross, we know that we can neither cease being guilty nor make the effort of cleansing ourselves. Now you should know here, it's not my intention to fill you up with a renewed sense of guilt and hopelessness and send you on your way. But actually this is where we turn to the cross and find hope and find comfort. And that's why... The importance of the second book we read about in Revelation 20 is so important. 
In Revelation 20, they call it the book of life, where the names are recorded of those people who have put their trust in Jesus. And here, the power of the cross is realized because it's here through Jesus that we're justified. We're made just, declared righteous, not because of anything written down from our works, but because, because of what Jesus has done for us. And the theological term for this is justification. And I want to explain it, and I'm going to do so through two passages. Firstly, starting in Ephesians 2, and I'm paraphrasing from verses 1 to 3, it tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, that we were by nature deserving of wrath. Dead in our transgressions and sins, and by nature deserving of wrath. And the beauty of the cross is that through Jesus we're justified. Jesus deals with the verdict against sin. Those transgressions, the wrongdoing, the sins that separate us from God, for which we deserve wrath, Jesus paid for that on the cross on our behalf taking the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserve and replacing it with his righteousness so that when we stand on judgment day, what matters most is how we're seen through Jesus and not how we're seen through our own efforts. Balance that verse in Ephesians with the words of Romans 4. And anybody who wants to deep dive into the theology of justification can go and read Romans 4, which is so rich in helping us to understand it. But Romans 4 essentially talks about the mercy and grace of God who through Jesus on the cross makes a way for us to be saved so that those of us who have faith through Jesus are justified by him. The last line of Romans 4 says, he, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Back to that courtroom picture I had you memorize earlier. Each one of us is totally deserving of that guilty judgment when stood before the perfect judge, But because of the cross, those who believe in Jesus are totally forgiven with sins paid for. He took the guilty sentence and what we hear now because we've been justified through Jesus is not guilty instead. This act of Jesus on the cross was preordained at creation. Since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve turned away from God, sin has been separating man from God. But God always had a plan. So apt that Grace read from Isaiah 52, the very next chapter, Isaiah 53 prophesies of one who will come to provide justification for all those of us who are deserving of punishment. It's tiny on the screen behind you. Hopefully you can see it, but I'll read it anyway, starting in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the 
transgressors. This was God's amazing promise to his people, fulfilled in Jesus. That as verse 11 states, he would justify many and bear their iniquities. Here we need to see that God's judgment on sin is an aspect of his mercy, not the opposite of it. So when we read Revelation 20, when we look at Michelangelo's last judgment depiction, yeah, we can see the violence of it. But to only see the violence of it is to miss the purpose entirely. So back to the courtroom, the assize and the sense of justice a courtroom provides. Wrongdoing needs to be punished and we can all draw crimes to mind. Things like murder, where we'd all agree that the perpetrator needs to be brought to justice. The mercy of the cross is that God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be rightly punished for what we've done wrong through a substitute so that we have the free benefits of relationship with God, of being righteous in his eyes, while the punishment for the acts itself is still paid. Wrongdoing always needs to be made right. Sin needs to be dealt with. The the imperfections of our sin cannot meet with the perfection of God. God despises sin because he's perfect. God has to be against that which would destroy us, that which would separate us from him, because perfection cannot meet imperfection. To help us in our understanding of this, I want to draw from a, um, an example that Fleming Rutledge used in her book that's really, really helpful. And it's having a look at the science behind a compass. Here's my compass. Brought it along today. Um, I'll, admit, I'll be freely the first to admit my scout leader isn't here. I never quite got to grips with being able to use them properly. So, um, yeah, it sits gathering dust in the drawer, I'm afraid. But there you go. But actually, the, the science behind a compass is, fa- is fascinating. Because the the upper end of the needle, through magnetic force, consistently seeks the North Pole. That North Needle is always trying to find that North Pole. And the same part of the needle that is magnetically drawn to the North Pole is magnetically repelled from the South Pole. They're not two separate forces, but one and the same, constantly pushing and pulling away from the South towards the North. That's how it works. And what I'm saying here is that for God to be for us and for our salvation, he must be against all that which would threaten to destroy that purpose. Pulling us in whilst rejecting what threatens. It's one and the same. The wrath of God that Ephesians 2 talks about is satisfied through Jesus, like we're told in Romans 4. The cross makes right what is wrong. On the cross, judgment was pronounced against sin. Jesus declared, it is finished. The verdict was cast and finalized, never to be changed never needing to. The completed work of the cross completely paid for sin. Jesus did what was necessary for us to be forgiven by God so that we're able to declare, not through our own merit, but solely because of his death on the cross, that we are justified. That's the finished position of the Christian in light of the final judgment of God. And actually, if you continue reading from Romans 4 into Romans 5, the very next verse says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've been justified, we've got peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this is where we need to reframe the conversation and see judgment as good news. Just like good overcoming evil in those BBC crime dramas, judgment's a good thing because it sets things right. The separation, the barrier that's created by the sins that we commit is totally dealt with through the finished work of the cross. God has mercy on us by turning the punishment on his son. Remember, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. 
to wipe clean our own slate. But it can only be done by a judge who judges fairly and justly, who deals with injustice, punishes wrongdoing, writes what's wrong, and makes a way for us to be free with him now and forever. This is good news for us. There's reason to praise because of the finished work of the cross and the justification that it provides for us, those who believe in him and choose to put our trust and our faith in him because God has mercy on us and has made a way for us to be with him. It's good news, and it's good news also because it deals with issues of justice. Judgment and justice go hand in hand. Think again for a moment about that courtroom scene, the process of judgment that made, is made so that justice can be served. So today's passage deals with justice through judgment. We've all got that sense of right and wrong ingrained in us and can deeply feel issues of justice, and so we should. And the Bible's full of people who cry out to God to bring justice where injustice is found. There's a couple of examples I'll put up here. In Habakkuk, we hear his complaint about how the wicked always seem to escape punishment before he says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Or earlier in Revelation 6, we hear the cry of Christian martyrs, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. It can be brutal to read, but for those who are in Jesus, we've got confidence that the cross has already paid for our wrongdoing. When we stand there on judgment day to be rightly judged for what we've done wrong, we'll be looked upon through the blood of Jesus, which has totally paid for our crimes, and we'll be treated as righteous instead. I remember hearing a really helpful preach a number of years ago that's helped me in thinking about judgment and justice. And I'm sure we can all bring to mind those times where we felt personally wronged, where we've been sinned against or made to feel awful or physically harmed or just felt helpless. And we might have felt angry and we might have called out, like those Bible verses, for justice to be, gone, to be done. God, why? Why is this injustice happening? We've wanted to see punishment for wrongdoing. Or the injustice that we see in the world around us, walking up and down Ashley Road and seeing issues of homelessness so in our face, turning on the TV screens and watching camps of refugees around the world. We could be angry about abuses of power we see or issues of race prominent on our television screens or any number of other abuses of power or crimes. And we can see these things and we can feel the injustice of them and know that they're not right. And of course, as Christians, we're also charged with doing what we can to fight those injustices when we see them. But here's the good news. Through Jesus, we've got that justice. For that wrong that's been done, the punishment's been determined. It's been paid for by Jesus on the cross, whose blood was shed as a punishment for the sins of the world, including those you've cried out for justice for. And that means that justice will also be done on the final judgment day where everybody will rightly and justly be judged for their wrongdoing. Please don't get me wrong here. It doesn't mean that we should fight for, shouldn't fight for injustice when we see it in the world now and bring wrongdoing into the light and work to make the world that we live in a better place. But we can also have confidence that we can come to the one who serves ultimate justice too and that there will always be justice for injustice. Whether we've got it through Jesus on the cross or on the day of judgment, Jesus will deal with the verdict against sin. You see, as Christians, we can feel that injustice but not let it consume us because we know we worship the great judge, the one who makes all things right, the one who's either taken the punishment and will proclaim the punishment or will proclaim the punishment to deal with injustice totally. When our heart breaks for the injustice as we see it around the world, we know that it represents something of God's heart to make things right, to bring, ju 
to bring justice and to right wrongs. And that's the God that we worship, the great judge. So take heart in knowing that we've got a God who fights for justice, whose mercy has paid for wrongdoing through Jesus on the cross, that we might stand there on judgment day in confidence that our name is in the book of life and that Jesus has dealt with the verdict of sin and made a way for us to be with him forever. I'll um, invite the band back up shortly and I'll pray for us. But before I do, there's just a couple of ways that I want to suggest that we respond as we look at how Jesus deals with the verdict against sin. And firstly, is by asking if there's any area of your life where you might need to repent. When we were talking about those books, all those things you've ever done recorded there, were you filled with a sense of guilt about what might have been included, that thing that nobody else knows about? Today's the day to come and seek forgiveness, to believe that the power of the cross has dealt with it, and to repent and to turn away and to walk the way of Jesus. I also want to ask, for those of you who are here this morning and you actually might not have given your life to Jesus, you might not have believed that truth that Jesus paid for your sins for all you've done wrong. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I believe this message is for you as well. And this morning there's an opportunity for you to believe who Jesus is and what he's done for you, paying the punishment you deserve for the things you've done wrong and swapping it for his righteousness so that you can be seen as clean and blameless, accepted into his family now and forever. By the way, I think there's a moment for us now as we come back to come to the God of justice and just lay it all down at the foot of his cross and to praise him for who he is, perfectly right and just. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you have dealt with the verdict against sin. That on the cross, when you said it was finished, it is finished. That is a permanent position that those of us who are in you, who believe in you, have our, our faith and trust in you, can have assurance in knowing that we have been totally and completely forgiven by what you've done. And Lord, we want to live in the truth of that. We want to live in the truth of knowing that that is, is who we are. That's how you see us. And so I want to pray now that as we, as we sit, as we wait on you, you would just be drawing those things to our mind that we need to just repent of and turn away from and turn towards you for, knowing that you have dealt with it. Do you come upon us, Lord? Open our hearts now as we come back and sing. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.